listening to a podcast from The National. Peace talks in the Middle East are underway again. The very term itself, some would say, implies failure. And in the region, UN-brokered or multilateral agreements usually indicate a complete political breakdown. When we look at the brief history of modern diplomacy in the Middle East, we'll find a high likelihood of failure at peace talks. You have Camp David, the Iran nuclear talks, which for all intents and purposes could lead to conflict, the Yemeni civil war and Iraq through the decades. All have somehow been unsuccessful. But now we have a new cul-de-sac in the diplomacy arena and the most recent addition to the futility of the term. It's found in Syria. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi, and this week we'll also be taking a look at Manchester's Muslim population as police report a 500% spike in hate crime and a volcano that is threatening the lives of thousands of people. But first, we go to the Middle East. Syria is gripped in a war that has killed more people than any conflict in recent history. Both Bashar al-Assad's government and the opposition are gathered in Geneva for the eighth round of peace talks. Experts are saying this one might have the highest chance of success with the other seven failing. Both parties have coordinated before the meeting in the Swiss city. But with snubs and impossible demands already underway, negotiators look to be falling on old habits. The Nationals' Mina al-Durubi is covering the event, and she joins us having talked to several key members on both sides. You're at the talks. Can you give us an impression of what the mood is in the halls and the negotiation rooms? So it's very quiet this morning at the UN headquarters in Geneva. There isn't really much going on. The new chief for the High Negotiations Committee, uh, Nasser al-Hariri, uh, Syria's main opposition group, um, is currently having a bilateral meeting with the UN mediator, Stefan de Mistura. And the opposition delegation is set to meet with UN officials later this afternoon in the, the Palace des Nations. Um, and up until an hour ago, there was still no indication that a government delegation would be attending the talks. But I just received news that the, de- that the delegation, if it decides to participate, will arrive to Geneva tomorrow morning. And it's been reported that they were still furious at the fact that the opposition wants the removal of Bashar al-Assad. So that's what's been going on this morning Okay, so what's the best case scenario for uh, each section? And I mean, is this a talk like we've seen in the past where one side is demanding something so impossible that the process is uh, more or less sabotaged before it even begins? So I've spoken to many experts on this issue. Some are positive that at least for the first time there is a unified delegation attending the peace talks in Geneva. And that is what Nasser al-Hariri said last night the opposition is ready and unified for real talks this time round. The opposition is still sticking to its word that they want Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, to go before any political transition is set to happen. But Mr. al-Hariri told reporters last night that the opposition is willing to go into serious negotiations with the regime, regardless um, of whether they want him to go. So they are open to talks which could show that there is a slight chance of change of tone in the opposition. And, you know, we're hopeful that something valid can come out of these talks in the next few days. The talks are also expected to focus primarily on a new constitution and elections, two of the four called, two of the four so-called baskets of reforms laid out by the UN for its political settlement to the Syrian crisis. 
what, what are those uh, baskets and i mean what, what i mean what are they hoping to achieve in those so mr dimisura announced earlier that he would press hard for particular upfront attention on a new constitution and un supervised elections two of the four baskets which also include a non-sectarian transitional government and counter-terrorism measures. Now, the discussions will also address the issues of detainees, people that have been abducted and missing um, by the regime. Um, And Mr. Demistura said, and also Nasser Hawi said last night, that they will be pushing for a full humanitarian access in any besieged or hard-to-reach areas, including eastern Ghouta. Historically, these talks have a high chance of breaking down, like we've mentioned. But is it one of those meetings whereby the more times both sides get together, the better it is for the country? I mean, even if they don't come to an agreement. Or is it likely to spark more conflict in Syria if we see a breakdown? I mean, we are in the eighth of the Syrian peace talks, and Syria's humanitarian crisis is worsening by the second. Um, the, the talks uh, in Geneva originally started in 2012 during the early stages of the Syrian war and aimed to establish a transitional government. However, the first talks and the subsequent ones in 2014, 2016, and earlier this year ended in a deadlock. The main disagreement has been over the future role of President Bashar al-Assad in a transitional government. This has considerably weakened the opposition's capability to negotiate a favorable way out of the crisis over the past few months. They're really sticking to their guns um, on this point. Uh, And also, there's been um, a statement issued by the opposition after a two-day meeting in Riyadh last week saying that, you know, they're sticking to their word that a, trans- that a transition cannot happen without the departure of Bashar al-Assad and his circle at the start of the interim period. But again, you know, this is not, it's not ca- clarifying, there, it's not clarifying how critical this issue would play out for resolving the, the, the Syrian crisis. A great ally, ally of uh, Bashar al-Assad is Russian President Vladimir Putin. And that's part of uh, what a lot of people are saying is different about this round of peace talks. So what what is Russia's involvement? So Russia has been heavily involved in the Russian conflict backing Bashar al-Assad regime. Uh, the new rounds of talks in Geneva will take place nearly a week after leaders of the Syrian rebel Bakr Turkey and regime allies Iran and, Sir- uh, Iran and Russia met in the Russian resort of Suchi, uh, where they supported a comprehensive dialogue for Syria. Now, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, called for a congress of the Syrian regime and opposition figures, saying that this would be stimulus for Geneva. Experts have told me that the congress was a tactical move on the part of Mr. Putin. Many believe that the Syrian Peace Congress will not bring an answer to all the questions of the conflict, but that Russia wants to get rid of any competitors in Syria in order to secure its previously diminished, uh, in order to secure its previ- previously diminished place in the region, and to also restore its influence as a world-class power in the Middle East and North Africa.
I mean, what about the other countries? This is uh, clearly a conflict that involves not only the neighboring countries, but regional and international players. So, I mean, what is the uh, international community's reaction to what's going on right now? So the Western parties aim to have quite a similar progress at Geneva talks than than what the uh, to what the opposition is pushing for. And also, Western parties that they actually have more say in Geneva than in any other round of the peace talks. Um, as the U.S. and the U.K. have sort of taken a, um, a step back in these negotiations, and they weren't involved in the Sochi talks or the Asana talks that were led by Russia. Um, the United States have played a relatively limited role in the Syrian affair. Um, previous President Barack Obama uh, started out in harmony with the Middle East Arab Spring, declaring that the Syrian president must go. However, Russia's continued interest in a naval base on the Mediterranean in Syria could, for sure, um, could show to a certain extent that the Syrian war can become a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. So the U.S. was left with... Um, an inconclusive support of some of um, Assad, of an anti-Assad um, element uh, in, in, in Syria. And, and so it, it backed um, Kurdish forces, uh, the YPG, that um, they, they sort of backed the Kurdish forces um, that took uh, ISIL's capital, Raqqa, in, in Syria, in Syria's northwest uh, quite recently. So the U.S. has sort of been sidelined and it's been supporting um, rebels, uh, anti-Assad rebels in the last uh, few years. Indonesian authorities ordered more than 100,000 people to flee the island of Bali after the iconic Mount Agung became active over the weekend. Plumes of smoke hurled into the air as high up as 9,000 meters have forced them to shut down the airport. Now. Tens of thousands of tourists are stranded in Bali, and some locals have lost their livelihood. We're joined by Theodora Sutcliffe, a reporter who wrote an article for us on the chaos that's ensuing in Bali and what might happen in the case of a volcanic eruption. So how serious is this, th- is this threat? You spoke to some volcanologists. I mean, what did they have to say? Right. Well, um, why people are concerned is that Egun is a large volcano with a record of large eruptions in a very populated part of the world. Um, It's also, well, a lot has been written about it. It's one of the less studied of Indonesia's 129 volcanoes. Um, The last major eruption was between 1963 and 1964. Um, And while there's a lot of evidence... um, oral history of what happened there. That only records the information that's obvious to people, you know, things that can be seen with the naked eye, heard with the human ear, um, or felt with the humble human body. Um, so there's obviously huge concern because this is one of only seven volcanoes in the world that's consistently hit um, volcano, uh, DEI, which is Volcanic Explosive, Explosivity Index 5. Um, that's the volcanic answer to the Richter scale. Um, so obviously that means the whole island is going to blow to pieces. Um, it doesn't mean we're looking at another Krakatoa. Um, but we could potentially be looking at an eruption on the scale of Mount Helens or Pinatubo, although it looks as though they're planning for something smaller than that, something 
operating around BEI-3 at the moment. The most immediate concern right now is that tens of thousands of tourists are stranded. So I just wanted to know what's going on in terms of the airports and delays? Okay, well, um, at the moment, the airport's closed on Monday morning. Um, it remains closed until tomorrow evening, and some airlines are canceling, canceling flights as far out as Thursday. Um, so we're looking at um, very significant disruptions, not only to Murray Airport, but to potentially other airports in the air- area, depending on which way the ash plume is, is blowing. Um, basically, you have an ash cloud that's up at 30,000 feet. It's cruising high. And on the last projections that I looked at from the Volcanic Ash Advisory Centre in Darwin, it is sitting all over Bali Airport. Um, you know, it, it doesn't look like um, planes are going to be flying for a while, to be brutally honest. Um, but what's quite noticeable is it seems to me that um, from talking to people at the airport earlier that most people who'd come to Bali, um, as for that matter, my family, who I'm uh, trying to fly out, um, came to Bali knowing full well that there was a volcano that had been rumbling since September and that the airport might close. Um, so there's some airlines that are handling it better than others. Um, there are... Um, you know, it was noticeable that um, Jetstar seemed to be doing very little compared to the others. That's the Australian budget carrier. Um, there's consular, um, consular assistance in place at the airport. Um, so essentially, you have a number of airports within relatively easy reach of Bali, but um, only on three separate islands. There's only one airport on the island of Bali. Um, and there simply isn't the boat capacity to get everybody off at this point in time. Um, so what's currently being done um, is the airport has laid on a few buses. Um, there is a paid service which takes um, passengers to Surabaya. Um, that's Indonesia's second city, um, and it's on Java. But that's at least a 12-hour journey at the best of time, and there's flooding along the route, and there's a cyclone in South Java. Um, so my advice to most people would be um, to sit tight and to see what happens with Bali. Right. So, I mean, um, well, there's also an airport. There's also an airport on, on neighbouring Lombok, which is currently open, um, and that's an international airport, but it's a small airport and it doesn't have a lot of capacity. Um, so there are routes out, um, but I think for most people who don't have urgent things to do, um, the best thing to do is sort of sit back and enjoy a little extra holiday, really. Right. So I was going to ask you about that. I mean, can you gauge people's reactions? Are they are 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 people afraid? Is there any sort of like panic going on or are they just waiting for things to calm down so that they can go home or, in the case of the locals, go about their daily lives? Well, I mean, so speaking speaking about Indonesians, you know, this is an archipelago with almost 130 active volcanoes. Um, I was in Sidamon this weekend, which is a very beautiful part of Bali um, and has an amazing view of the volcano. And a few people had donned um, small surgical masks to protect against Ashfall. But basically, everybody was out looking at the awe-inspiring sight, the wonder of nature that is an erupting volcano. Um, in terms of tourists, I was very struck by how calm everybody was at the airport. Um, I didn't see anyone shouting. Um, I didn't see anyone drunk. Um, 
I didn't see anyone in tears. Um, you know, there were sort of most stressed families dragging wailing children. Um, you know, that was in general, people seem to be taking it very calmly. Um, you know, whether that will be the case if we get a, a large explosive eruption, um, which is um, a possibility um, that's suggested today because seismicity measures in the mountain um, went up to the highest level since September, which I believe means the highest level ever recorded um, around lunchtime today. Um, but at the moment, I'd say the overwhelming majority of people are calm, um, but um, locals and expats and business owners, um, there's a level of quite high anxiety among the many people who depend on tourist, on tourist revenue for their income, for their livelihood. Right, right. And I mean, we have a precedent you mentioned earlier in the 1963 volcano could you just tell me a little about a little bit about what happened there, and uh, if scientists are saying that you know there's a possibility that it might happen again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now that was quite a lethal volcano. Um, there were well over a thousand deaths. Um, I think the officially recorded number is eleven hundred, um, but really, who's counting? Um, it happened during a large religious festival that happens only 100 years um, on the island, and Bali practices its own unique form of Hinduism. Um, so that impacted things. You had people sitting there praying at lava flows. And because also in 1963, you didn't have early warning systems. Villagers did not have motorbikes or any form of power transport, pretty much, um, there were, you know, no mobile phones, no internet, no silent systems, um, no um, early warning place, early warning systems in place, no geologists on the mountain measuring what was going on. Um, so I think people who extrapolate from the fatalities there to assume a similar number of fatalities now would be wrong. But one thing the authorities are doing at the moment um, is being very forcible about evacuating everyone from within 8 to 10 kilometer radius of the volcano. Um, one of the big threats at the moment is perceived to be um, lajas, which are fast-moving volcanic mudslides, which run down riverbeds. Um, another threat that could occur um, if we get a large explosive eruption is pyroclastic flows. Um, and these are sort of superheated clouds of gas, steam, and volcanic material that can travel at sort of 200 kilometers an hour or faster. Um, however, what I want to sort of re-emphasize is that for the tourist areas, you know, sort of Ubud is 35 kilometers from Agun, um, Kuta Seminyak, South Bali, 50 to 70. You know, for most tourists, um, there's going to be very limited impact, um, but for uh, limited risk but for the locals um, in those areas, many of whom have already lost their rice crops, um, perhaps had to sell their livestock at a loss, um, been evacuated and living in shelters, um, you know, they're at risk and consequences for them could be, um, already are, very, very real.
Months after the suicide bomb attack on Manchester Arena, police are reporting an increase in hate crime in the city. The anti-Muslim abuse is at an all-time high, and minorities are struggling with living in an increasingly unwelcome environment. From the National's London Bureau, Paul Peachy brings us the story of what locals are doing to counter the bigotry and try to change perceptions. It's a wet night in the northwest of England. Thousands of people are heading to the Manchester Arena for a concert by all-girl band Little Mix. The next stop is Victoria Station. A light here for National Rail, Metrolink trams, the Manchester Arena, Chetham's and the National Football Museum. On May the 22nd, Salman Abadi detonated a rucksack filled with explosives and metal here as children and their families streamed into the foyer towards the end of a concert by US pop star Ariana Grande. He killed 22 people, more than a third of them girls. Susan works on a stall outside the venue, painting the faces of a steady stream of young girls heading to the concert. Were you here six months ago? I wasn't here that night, but I normally am, and I'm normally stood in that entrance there. And it just scared me looking at it. But you still come back? Yeah. The first time was horrible, but... And it does make you wonder why people would even do that to anybody. Simon Iqbal is a doctor who lives and works in the city. Someone like Salman Abedi who has lived in Manchester, for him to go out in his home home city and commit an act like that, there must be, you know, a total disconnect from from him and how he feels towards his, you know, home city. What makes people feel so disconnected or have such a lack of sense of belonging that they can do something like that? Many people have been asking the same thing. Nazir Afsal is a former chief prosecutor for the region. The police were quite rightly focusing on the investigation. So people were talking about the investigation, uh, who he was, what might have driven him. But nobody was talking about why he might have been radicalised or what we need to do about de-radicalisation or how we tackle the bigger impacts around uh, community cohesion. And so there was an enormous gap that wasn't being plugged. He has been asked to join a panel set up by the Mayor of Manchester to take a hard look at the national anti-radicalisation strategy and ask whether the city can come up with something better. Prevent is one quarter of the state's strategy for tackling extremism and um, terrorism. If you think about the history of this programme, it started in the aftermath of um, what we call 7-7, the attacks um, on the underground, London Underground in 2005. It was created then uh, by the Tony Blair government and initially it was uh, accepted by everybody as, as, as what it is, safeguarding. And uh, it is really about preventing it happening in the first place. So preventing those from becoming extreme, preventing extremists from taking it to a more violent level. My nuanced view was that uh, the principle is absolutely right. You know, we, we would benefit tremendously from preventing extremism uh, and therefore all the consequences of that. The Muslim communities particularly, or large portions of, the, of it, um, saw it as a spying tool, surveillance, targeting just the Muslims, um, when the reality was very different. And so it's nothing complicated. It's been poorly communicated. Uh, it's, there's been really poor engagement with the communities most impacted by it. Uh, and all of that is fixable and is being fixed. Not everybody is convinced. 
I'm heading to the office of Grassroots Organisation Muslim Engagement and Development. Its members have been working with the police to address concerns of the community. Sima Iqbal is a volunteer. I think the question there would be is, do we need it? And I think that is such a fundamental question that needs to be asked. You know, sometimes people will say, well, we need prevent to keep um, the country safe. You know, it's almost like, so what? You know, in the recent Home Office figures, 95% of referrals were incorrect. And sometimes people say, well, that's okay because we're keeping the country safe. But are we keeping the country safe when our threat level is so high? And, you know, airport scanners keep the country safe, but airport scanners know what they are looking for. So we will have a charter, we will have shared values, we will have a de-radicalisation programme that we hope has the, uh, the support of and um, encouragement from the communities that it impacts on. Um, you know, I'm sitting on this panel with a former member of a far-right group. You know, it, it's recognition that it's, you know, all communities are impacted by this. Abedi was born in Britain of Libyan parents. And it's the Muslim community that has felt the backlash most keenly. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, there was a 500% increase in hate crimes across Greater Manchester. Fakrul Chowdhury monitors hate crimes for a group called Tel Mama. I personally visit a number of mosques in, in Manchester that were attacked. So one in Oldham where the front door was set alight, uh, it was reported as a, as a hate incident. This was within hours of the Manchester uh, arena attack. It was quite uh, warming to know on the ground, a lot of the wider community, Muslim and non-Muslim community, came together and, and offered their support. Sometimes after these incidents, Muslim communities, well not sometimes, often after these incidents, Muslim communities become very, very scared. Uh, they almost feel like double victims, so they potentially were all victims of the extremist uh, attacks like the Manchester bombing. But then there's a second round of being victims as Muslims in terms of the Islamophobia and the Islamophobic attacks. This country has had 50 years of terrorism um, because we had the Irish Republican movement uh, and uh, therefore we had Republican Irish Republican terrorism in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. The Manchester city centre was virtually destroyed uh, by an IRA bomb in, in, the, in the 1990s. So we've had, an ex we've had experience of it and this, this is why I suspect the uh, people here are resilient you know, they've been bombed by the Nazis during the Second World War as well. So they're resilient to this kind of activity. This is nothing new to them. But what they want to do is win this war, not through violence and not through uh, attacks and not through, uh, that, you know, military ways, but win the war of ideas. And the war of ideas requires us to understand what it is that we are dealing with and what it is that we believe in. And I am absolutely certain that um, Greater Manchester can lead the way in this. I think there's such a momentum. Um, is it because of the targeting of the arena? I think that has a significant impact on it. Um, will it stop another attack? Uh, sadly, you know, I speak from experience having dealt with such terrorism for 20, 30 years. Uh, they have to be successful once. We have to be successful all the time. Back at the arena, the doors are about to open, and parents are hurrying with their children through the rain to tonight's concert. It looks yeah. like the security's well beefed up. There's a bit of trouble before, and the police just ran straight across. Right on it. We booked this in December last year, 
and when we heard about it, is it May and June it happened? When it was May, we was a bit scared, but no, we decided to come. Yeah. But go and queue now, then we don't get wet. I'm, I'm, I'm just a taxi. He's a taxi driver. <laughs> so yeah, looking forward to it. No, the terrorists are not going to put us off. Definitely not. Thanks to Paul Peachy who produced and reported that segment. I'd also like to thank Mina Drubi, Theodora Sutcliffe, and Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasr al Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>